like to use the back room as a nursery, you may feel free to do that. Um, for the rest of us, let's turn to Genesis chapter 22. This is a communion Sunday, and so as such, we, um, we don't have our testimony time. We do that during the communion um, time as well, the passing out, distributing of the elements. And so um, we forgo that today. Through the, the course of this year, we have been considering um, the coming of Christ and the fact that that coming of Christ wasn't a mystery um, from the perspective that, that he was going to come on the world. But rather, it was, God was giving indicators of that throughout history for us. And um, the importance of this, I think, is really seen at the end of Jesus' life, quote-unquote, here on earth, when he comes back and, um, and he shows himself to all the disciples, and then um, and they turn around and they talk about once to one another, but there was somebody specific that wasn't there that day. Who was it? No, not Judas. Well, we know Judas wasn't there, but one of the real disciples. Thomas. Thomas wasn't there. And so Thomas says, though, I want what? I'm not going to believe until I see it, so I can touch him, until I can feel him, until I can smell him, until I taste him. I mean, you, you know, I, I'm adding a little bit there more, more to it, but until I see it with my own eyes, I won't believe. Jesus comes back, and, and Thomas falls at his knees. We know the story, and he says, my Lord, my God. And Jesus says an interesting thing to him. He says to Thomas, he says, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Now, I venture to say that probably none of you here today have literally, physically seen Jesus. That he didn't pop up and appear in your life walking alongside of you like he did with the two guys on the road to Emmaus. Like he did that night for the disciples when all of a sudden there he was in their midst. Like he did for Thomas. I, I kind of think that he probably showed up right behind Thomas. That's kind of where he appeared that day, while Thomas was opening up his mouth. You know, aren't you glad that he doesn't do that to us sometimes, huh? when we open up our mouths? You know? And all of a sudden, you know, they'll, they'll tap on the shoulder. You know, <coughs> Thomas? Oh, my Lord, oh my God. No, 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 Thomas, get up. Come on, buddy. Put your fingers here. Come on. You, know, you, you, you said it. Now, now it's time. But Jesus said, you know, blessed are those who don't need who don't need to see me. Blessed are those who will believe based upon the testimony that's here. If we can kind of scoot, scoot and find spaces, that will be great. We have folding chairs in the back as well to bring in. So over the last month and a half, we have been considering this, um, the indicators of Christ um, coming to the earth, and that it wasn't a mystery. The timing may have been a mystery, but the coming wasn't. We have seen, starting in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, that Christ is the Lord of creation. He's the Lord of Shabbat. He's the Lord of the Sabbath, meaning that he has to be the Lord of creation because the Lord of the Sabbath is the Lord of creation. He was the seed of woman, which means that he's not only God, but he's also going to be fully man, fully human. Job, again, not, we don't have time to go into each one of these, um, but Job, what a phenomenal statement for Job at the time between Noah and Abram to say, I know that my Redeemer lives, and I will see him face to face after my body is decayed and I'm given a new body. That's an incredible statement. We think that's a New Testament teaching. But it was clearly all the way back that Noah must have understood it coming off the ark because it was understood by those people who were believers between the time of Noah and, and Abram. Then we began looking at Abram, and we saw the seed of Abram, Abraham became his name, and that Abram was called from the land of Ur. 
and that he was, in, in Abram, it was promised that he would be a blessing to all nations, and that in his seed would become the blessing of all nations. And so Jesus is that seed. But we saw by extension as well, when we have faith in Jesus Christ, that we then become as well seeds of Abraham. Seeds based upon faith, that we come by faith. What an exciting thing. And then last week, we looked at Christ being the Melchizedekian priest. Now, isn't that a nice word, huh? Melchizedekian priest. But what it meant was that Jesus Christ would be not only a king, but he would also be a priest. And he would not be the priest in the order of Aaron or Levi, okay? but that he would be in the order of Melchizedek. This little blurb that comes in a time when Abram has gone to, to, to um, deliver Lot from, from, um, from the kings, from Cadalaramur and the other kings who had come and, and captured Sodom and Gomorrah and, and some other cities of the plain. And so he goes out with his 300 men and, and the, 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 the servants of, of his neighbors, and, and they, they destroy these kings, and, and, and they get everybody back. And as he comes back into the area, Melchizedek meets him, and we're, we're told that this Melchizedek is also called the, uh, the, the king of Salem. And so Melchizedek by itself means king of righteousness, but he's also called the king of peace, Salem, Shalem. And, so, and we talk then about what our reputations are. If we were given a name that was... Um, really representative of who we were, what would we be called? You know? And so I talk about Theophilus in the New Testament, whose name literally means friend or lover of, of God. And so would I be Weephilus, a lover of we, you know? Um, you know would I be Ballphilus, the lover of, of, of ball? And my, my boys asked me, which ball, what kind of ball were you talking about, Dad? <laughs> and I said, just read between lines. It doesn't matter. Football, baseball, basketball, soccer ball, whatever ball you want to place in, place in there, you know? As guys, we just like what? Ball. Doesn't mean it doesn't matter. Just, you can put a puck. You know, puck's kind of like a ball, too. You know, it rolls around on the ice. You're just from the south. That's your problem. Anyways, so, so whatever that sport is, you know, you can put sportfulness in there, okay? But women, now I'm not trying to pick on the woman, but, you know, I put in that milky chat kind of thing and milky shop and all that kind of stuff. You know, would you be the king or queen of shopping, the king or queen of chatting? You know, and so today I could do with the teenagers and, and put textfulness on it, and, you know, and, and, and Facebook or Melky Facebook on it, you know, the king of Facebook. Um, it's just amazing to me, the things that we put in the place of, of God. Okay? But the exciting thing is that we don't have a high priest who cannot be touched with our infirmities. But we're told, as back in the beginning, as he was true God, so he is what? True man. And so as Jesus Christ was on the earth, as Messiah came and he was on the earth, he was tempted in every way such as we are, yet he was without Sin. All these things begin in their roots as indicators coming from the Old Testament. God gave us indicators. Today um, is coming a week early. It's awesome because it's, it's, it, the Lord has hooked it up with a communion Sunday. But next week is we celebrate Valentine's Day. But really today we're going to look at the passage that talks about the ultimate act of God's love for us. We're going to talk about Christ being the Lamb of God. But that Lamb of God, and as we see with Abraham, and Abraham's um, challenge in his test, really is a portrayal, since he didn't have to go through with it, right? Is a portrayal of the ultimate act of God's love for us. And so I want to look at this passage in Genesis 22, both, again, practically and then prophetically. And so first we want to look at this practically. 
Steve read the passage a little bit earlier, uh, Genesis 22, verses 1 to 19. We'll come through this again. But note, first of all, as we go into it, God's request to Abraham. God's request to Abraham. Verse 1 says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. God tested Abraham. You know, again, we, we mentioned that when we were in the book of Job, the afflictions of Job, and God allowing the afflictions to come. And so here we have a volitional statement coming. God didn't just allow Abraham to be tested, but God what? Tested him himself. God came down and says to Abraham, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. And God said, take now your son. Now that's bad enough, right? Your only son, Isaac. Now this is important. We're going to come to this in a moment, okay? Was it his only son? Yes and no. You know, people always hate when I give yes and no answers, but God gives a yes and no question here, okay? Or statement. Fact is, he already had Ishmael. But as we're going to see it, Ishmael is not the son of promise. Take now your son, your only son, the one whom you love. And I want you to go to the land of Moriah, to the mountain I'm going to show you, and I want you to offer him there as a burnt offering. Okay, dads. Some of us is easy. We have more than one. You want, which, can I pick? <laughs> you want to take one of my kids? Can I pick? <laughs> How about two? God, you really want a bigger offering than that, don't you? Anyways, no, I'm joking. Okay. I mean, sometimes. It depends on those days. You know, ever have those days where the kids wake up and say it's a good day to die? You know, those are the days when you want God to come to you and give you this test. Anyways, but as a dad, could you imagine what it would have been like for God literally, not just, you know, maybe you kind of wondered whether you had a pepperoni pizza last night and, you know, what was really going on in your dreams, but to undoubtedly, unequivocally know that God was speaking to you and he was telling you to take your son, if you have more than one, your firstborn son, and to go off him as a sacrifice. Bring it into our days today. You don't really have a, an altar in the backyard to kill him. To kill him as a sacrifice. That's really, boil it down. God was saying, I want you to take this journey. I mean, it's not like just going out in the backyard. But Abraham's going to have to walk, about, walk for three days. Yeah, exactly. Thinking about this. They're journeying to go do this. We're told that Abraham got up the next morning, early. He didn't delay. I don't know about you. I might have thought it was a good day to sleep in. To procrastinate. To put this thing off. Now, I, I want to I kind of open up this test just a little bit. Um, with God's request to Abraham. To, to, to help us to understand a little bit more. Turn back just a couple pages probably in your Bibles to chapter 17. In verse 15 to 19, we read, Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, remember her name back then was Sarai, before she had Isaac, her name was Sarai. Then she became Sarah. For, and as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and also give you a son by her. 
Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And he said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old? 90 years old. I mean, dad's 100. I mean, I, I, I kind of chuckle here at myself with Anna, okay? I'm going to be 50 this year. Okay, just, just get it out in the open. Okay, it doesn't bother me. Age never bothers me. People gave me all these black balloons when I turned 40. It didn't bother me. You know, what's my alternative? You know, I mean, I, now, now honestly, from my perspective, the alternative is to be with God, and that's a better, better, better thing. So you know what? Age doesn't really bother me. It's the aches and pains that go with it that bother me. Okay? And so, but Anna is, is four, okay? Almost four and a half, but four. That means by the time that she graduates from high school, say 18, I'm going to be 64. I'm going to almost be retirement age. I can almost put in for Social Security. And so we joke about the, the, the walker that I'm going to be going across the stage in, you know, and, uh, and, and, and Marsha. We've seen some of the homeschool moms and dads with all the gray hair and everything. They look like they've gone through World War X. And, um, and I think to myself, that's what I'm going to look like. <laughs> and, uh, but I'm still going to be a spring chicken. I'm going to be graduating my last at 64. God just told Abraham at the age of 100 he was going to have a kid. <laughs> and Sarah at the age of 90, after she was well past childbearing age. Now, some of you women, would you have considered this a blessing? <laughs> Whoa! What did I do to deserve this curse? But for them at that time, it was a blessing. It was a blessing. She desired to have that child. And so God's going to bless her, and he's going to show them that this is something that only God could have done. This is how awesome this really this thing is going to be. And in verse 20, or verse 19, he goes on, he says, You'll name his, call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant and his descendants after him. So who's the covenant that Abraham had? Who was that covenant going to be through? Isaac, and after him, his descendants. Okay, Make no doubt about it, God is giving a, a, a definitive statement here. And then he goes on, just to make sure that Abraham and, and, and Sarah and Hagar do, don't get this thing mixed up. And he says, and as for Ishmael, I heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful, and multiply him exceedingly, and he shall beget twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. In other words, I haven't forgotten Ishmael, but he's not the guy. Remember that when you talk to Muslims. Muslims believe he's the guy. Okay? So, so when you talk to somebody from Muslim, they go back to Abraham. They, they talk about Father Abraham. But they believe Ishmael's the guy. God says specifically, what? Ishmael wasn't the guy. Isaac's the guy. Because it's going to come through Sarah. He's going to be the seed. Now, God gave Abraham this specific statement. Okay? If it wasn't for this specific statement, Abraham very clearly could have rationalized this request of God and decided what? Ishmael was supposed to be the, the one. Do you get it? Makes sense, right? We had Ishmael all along. It should have been Ishmael. And here we were, you know. But I think that, that God, God states this to, to, um, to Abraham about Isaac, and I honestly think, with the way God words this, take your son, 
your only son whom you love. As an indicator that I think Abraham began to take his eyes off the blesser and put them on the blessing. And potentially God says, well not potentially God says, God says this, but potentially applicable here. God says the first commandment when he gives the ten words of the covenant to Israel is you shall have no other gods before me. And you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything, whether in the heavens above or the earth beneath or the waters below. I think, that was one and two, I think that there's a potential that Abraham began to place his devotion to Isaac above his devotion to God. Now, I don't think God didn't know what Abraham's response was going to be. I know that. I mean, God is what? He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. And so we read in the Psalms, Before I utter the words out of my mouth, behold, you know what the words were on my tongue. God knows. So what's the test all about? It's not about, it's to teach Abraham. It's not about God finding out. It's about Abraham finding out. And I ask myself the question as I go through this passage many times, not just for this message. What are the things in my life that I've allowed to become more important than God? Consider the rich young ruler in Luke 18. You can turn there or we can at least talk about it, but it's there for you to look at. You know the rich young ruler. The young man comes to Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, Well, you know the commandments. Honor your father and your mother. Thou shalt not commit murder. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not uh, bear false witness. And, and the young man says what? I've done all those from the time I was a kid. Now, I mean, one of those things was bearing false witness. And I think Jesus could have stopped right there and said, You're a liar right now. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, honestly, the guy's claiming what? Perfection. Sinlessness. There is... What do we know from the Word of God? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? So, I mean, clearly, if Jesus wanted to, he could have... He made fish for people, 5,000 people plus to eat, right? And so, fish came out of thin air. I, he, could have, he could have gave them, you know, a, a, a video screen, which they would have no clue what it was, but pop out of thin air, and he could have made a, a projector, which they would have no clue what it was, but all of a sudden, it would have been there, because it wouldn't need to be plugged into anything, would it? He... he He's all-powerful, so he could do all the by himself. And all of a sudden, a video of this guy's life could have been projected for everybody to see when he was a child and he disobeyed his mom and dad. Or he, whatever. Does it make sense? And Jesus could have went through each one of those commandments, and he could do that for your life as well, and show you how many sins you really have had in your life. He didn't do that. Rather, Jesus knew this guy like he intimately knows every person on the earth. And he knows you and me. And he says, well, you've lacked one thing. What's that? Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then you will have great riches in heaven. And we're told that this young man, rich young man, walked away sad. Because he loved his riches more than he loved God. Now, I'm not saying that God's going to ask every single one of you to open up your checkbook today, please, write out the balance, and stick it in that offering basket. That would be awesome. Um, but I don't, I don't believe that God, you know, 
God's not doing that, okay? It, okay? I would be full-time in a week. Uh, anyways. But I do believe that God does do that with each of his children in some manner. God knows what it is that is holding you back from full commitment. And God is not content with a half a sacrifice. Romans 12 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable act of worship or service. And do not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed in the renewing of your mind, that you may be able to prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God desires, come on up, God desires a perfect sacrifice, not a half a sacrifice. Now that we've got Chris sitting up front, the intimidating factor is here. So if, you want, if I say anything that's really wrong, just whisper in Chris's ear. And Anyways, yeah. But is it? On the other side, and I have to ask myself this, is it riches for Bob? Is it money? Jesus very clearly makes a big deal about money throughout his teaching. In Matthew chapter 6, he says, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where the moth and the rust are going to corrupt, but rather you should be laying up for yourself treasures in heaven. You can't serve God and mammon, which is the things that money buys, is literally what it means, which brings into our current vernacular as materialism. You can't serve God in, in the things of this world, materialism. You're either going to love the one and hate the other, serve the one and despise the other. Which one are you going to serve? The rich young ruler walked away sad because he wasn't going to choose God. What about Peter in Mark chapter 1? Peter's about his business. What, 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 what did Peter do? Fish. He was a fisherman. He worked with his hands. He stank like fish because that's what he was. And what he was, was what he was that day when Jesus walked by. He was mending his nets, cleaning his nets. They get stinky after they have a bunch of fish in them. He and his partners, Andrew's brother, James and John were partners as well. But at this moment, the conversation was with Peter alone. And Jesus walking on by, walking on by. Now, he had a previous intercourse, interactions with him. Jesus turns to Peter, walking on by, and says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Peter was at a moment of crisis of faith. He didn't say, after you're done cleaning the net and putting it away and prepared for the next day, come hang out with me for the day. He was in the middle of business. And Jesus said, I want you to leave it and follow me. I want you to leave your livelihood. For Peter, it's more than even just livelihood. I want you to leave everything that represents you. Do you remember when Peter and John were in front of the Sanhedrin and they were, they were proclaiming Christ? Do you remember what it says in the book of Acts that the, the Sanhedrin thought about them? It says that they realized they were just what? Ignorant Galileans. They knew they, they were just fishermen. They were just stinking fishermen. 
blue-collar workers. They might not have even known how to read real well. Probably knew how to read a little bit, but probably they weren't you know, the, the orators that Apollos and Paul might have been. But they realized one important thing, that they had been with Jesus. Jesus said, follow me. Walk away from it all, and I'll make you fishers of men. It wasn't just to Peter alone that that happened. Can you imagine being Levi, whose also name was Matthew, who happened to be a tax collector, who happened to be sitting at the tax booth that day? He had a great job. See, tax collectors got a cut of everything that came in. And he happened to be sitting at the booth that was on the king's highway. So as everybody traveled from the north into the land, they would pass by his booth. And he got to have a cut of everything that came in. It's customs. You know, we have that today. You have to pay customs as you come into the United States from Canada or into Canada from the United States, depending on the things that you have or the things that you purchased. Matthew got a cut of all that. Now, he had to give some of that back to Rome. But he had to get to keep a portion, too. And we're told that Jesus passed by his booth and said, Follow me. He said, just follow me. And Matthew got up and left everything to follow him. He was willing to sacrifice. Do you understand the importance of that sacrifice? What do you think happened to the money sitting at the booth? It got looted. It didn't last very long. I mean, people were glad to have a tax break. A, 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 what, what do we call it? A, um, in, a a holiday, no, but I'm thinking more of a, uh, what was the official stimulus package? There was a stimulus package that opened that day. <laughs> Anyways, and uh, they had, all had tax refunds. Um, and, and, and so what, what do you think happens to a guy as a tax collector who is a representative of the Roman government when he walks away from all the Roman proceeds? He's what? Enemy of the state. Ah. He gets up and he leaves it all. Do you get where I'm going here? Jesus turns to that individual, whoever you individually are. And he grabs us right at the jugular. Because he knows what's important to us. He knows the thing that is inhibiting us from being fully committed to him. And he comes right at us and he says, are you willing to walk away from it? Are you willing to sacrifice it all? Peter, are you willing to sacrifice your fishing enterprise? Levi, are you willing to leave the lucrative offerings of the Roman government? Abraham, are you willing to sacrifice your son, your only son? The one whom you've loved and the one whom I said to you, the blessing would come through. Are you willing to sacrifice the blessing for the blesser? Paul said, all these things that were gained to me, I count but dung. The word literally means the things that are thrown to the dogs. The things that are thrown to the dogs. And the dog back then was was worse than anything. They didn't have pet dogs. They didn't have hunter running around, you know, around the house. You know, some of us have multiple dogs or whatever. They didn't do that with dogs. They ate dogs, you know, or whatever. But anyways, um, that may be an awful thing, but go to the Orient. Anyways, and so 
dogs were awful. And so he says, I count these things that were gained to me as things that were just thrown to the dogs that I may know him, Christ, in the power of his resurrection. And it would have been nice if he stopped there, wouldn't it? Because he says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his sufferings. We'll talk about it in a moment again. But clearly, what did Jesus walk away from for you? Everything. That moment in the garden when he said, not my will but thine, it wasn't just about his life. Do you understand from eternity past that there was a fellowship in the Godhead? Again, I can't tell you in fast detail the mystery of the Trinity. I don't comprehend it all. It's mind-boggling to me how God is one, and yet he is three. I, I, I vastly understate it every time I try to explain it. It sounds like I must believe in three gods at times. And other times I, I water, water it down, and it's like I really don't believe in the three manifestations of the Godhead. And so no matter how I do it, I always tend to, to, to go to one end or the other because it's hard for me to grasp the mystery of that whole concept, Okay. But what I can tell you, now making it sound like I believe in three gods, okay, on the Trinitarian side of this whole thing, is that Jesus knew at that moment that he became sin. Not that he died for sin, but we're told in 2 Corinthians 5 that he who knew no sin became sin. And that sin cannot be found in the presence of God. At that moment that he became sin, there would be a what? Separation between him and the Father. It may have only been, from our perspective, a one-hundredth of a second, which you can't fathom and I can't fathom. Although we put it on all those little electronic clocks. It's amazing. But to, to Jesus would have been an eternity. And the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit we're willing to put it all on the line because they love you. That's the ultimate Valentine, isn't it? So, Jesus was asked, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? He said, Man, I don't know. There's 613 of them in the Old Covenant. I, you want me to pick one? How can I do that? I don't know. I mean, I have to think about this. Let me research for a little bit. Let me talk to the, to the scribes and the Pharisees. Did he, he didn't go over all that, right? I mean, immediately, Jesus comes back from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, right? And he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second was like unto it, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets. Love. Love. You need to love God with what? Everything. With it all. Your time, your talents, your treasures, everything you, your, 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 your hopes for the future, your dreams for the future, everything you have out there, they are his, or they ought to be his. If they're not, there is some repentance, changing the way you think, that needs to happen. What was Abraham's response? Well, we've already said the fact that Abraham did what? He got up early the next morning. And the first thing we see then is Abraham's obedience displayed his fear of God. His fear of God. Now that's not a, a nice thing. 
look at verse 12. And he says, do not lay your hand on your son. This is the end of it when, when the angel of the Lord comes. And he says, do not lay your hand on your son or do, not, or do anything to him. For now I know that you what? Fear God. Ah. Now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld. You know what, the, 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 what, what God says basically is when you boil down obedience to him, what it boils down to? Is fear. And I know fear, fearing God is not a New Testament co- new, t- new Covenant teaching. It is a New Covenant teaching. That's exactly right. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, you know, we, 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 we are, we are groaning in this tent for this tent to be done away with so that we can be clothed eternally. And then he says, for we know that when we leave here, when we depart from this tent, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we're going to give an account for everything we've done in our flesh. And then he goes on and he says an interesting thing. He says, therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. The word terror in the Greek is the word phobos, which properly is translated, guess what? Fear. And the word Lord, kyrios, is the word that would be used for Yahweh. If you were bringing it over, it would be, because the, the, the Jews would not say Yahweh, they would say Adonai, which is Lord, which we brought over into Greek as Kyrios. Paul says, therefore knowing the fear of God. Paul, he's the preacher of grace. What's he talking about the fear of God? Paul says, therefore knowing the fear of God, the fear of God, I persuade men. If there's nothing else that's going to hold me in obedience, it's going to be the fact that I know that one day what? I'm going to give an account. I'm going to give an account. God is not this this proverbial grandpa winking at all the things that I do. He's my dad. You know the difference between your dad and your grandpa? Your grandpa may get aggravated at some of your foolishness, but he knows you're going back home. Your dad says, I'm stuck with you, so I've got to correct it. <laughs> no, I don't want to make God sound like he's stuck with me. Okay? But that's the picture we're given in Hebrews chapter 12, right? That he'll discipline us. He'll spank us. He'll chastise us, is the word. And so Abraham got it. He understood there was a balance. He loved God. But he also understood what it meant to fear God. And it was his fear of God which, as we see in the book, uh, book of Proverbs numerous times, that is the beginning of all knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Abraham got some specific wisdom and instruction from God. And he did what? He obeyed it. Proverbs chapter 14, it says, In the fear of Yahweh, there is strong confidence, and his children will have a place of refuge. That's kind of interesting, huh? Especially as we're talking about offering them up as a sacrifice. The fear of Yahweh is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. So, going back to that offering up of your kids, are you willing to just kind of lay your kids out there as a sacrifice? You ought to be. Because God can take better care of them than you can. I mean, think about it. I mean, we we think, wow, you know, God can take care of them better than I can. Proverbs 15, verse 33, The fear of Yahweh is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. What's the point? Humble yourself in the sight of God. The fear of the Lord is an awesome thing. And so we are called on to fear God. Now, his fear of God 
we see as well, is replaced or is superseded with his faith in God. What do we know about, about Abraham from this passage in his faith? Well, first of all, we knew that he trusted in God to be true to his promise. Proverbs 3 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways and he will what? Direct your path. So what do I know from this passage that, that shows me, that confirms to me that Abraham was trusting in the Lord to be a man of his word? Verse 8. Isaac says to him, Dad, we, we got the wood, we have the fire. But nothing personal. I know you're looking. No, understand that Abraham or Isaac's probably about 13, so this makes Abraham about 113 at this point. Okay? And so I'm sure he was very, very respectful. I know that based upon the fact that he allowed himself to be offered as a sacrifice. Okay? But I can almost picture him in his mind thinking, uh, Dad, <clears throat> I know you're 113 now. Uh, and, and they haven't quite termed Alzheimer's yet, but I think you got it. Okay? And we've got the wood, we got the fire, we're going to do a sacrifice, we've forgotten something. Could you imagine the pain, the searing pain that must have been in Abraham at that moment when he looked at his son and he said, my son, God himself will provide the lamb. What an awesome statement. I mean, Job, I know my Redeemer lives, and I am going to see him face to face after my body is destroyed and I'm given a new one. My son, God himself, will provide the lamb. He knew that God was true to his promise, and God had made him a promise. And what was the promise? That in Isaac, the covenant will come. And in that statement that he knew that he'd be true to his promise, he knew that God was going to be able to, if he would, resurrect Isaac. For we read in Hebrews chapter 11, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Offered him up! Now, understand, we know that he didn't actually, actually do the, the, the dirty deed. He didn't kill him. God stopped him ahead of time and says, you don't have to do it. It was just a test. But in all intents and purposes, in, I, in Abraham's heart, what did he do? He did it. He got him all the way up on the altar, tied and ready, and had the steel of the knife ready to pierce. The deed was done in Abraham's heart. He offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, including that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Moms and dads, do you believe that about your kids? This is only a short time that we live here, even if it's 80 years or 90 years, or 113. And I don't want to be tested. I, I don't like the part of the in, the in the fellowship of the suffering side. Okay, I, I'm I'm just like you are. I don't. I'm I'm not looking at God saying, "Bring it on, God." I know that, that's. No, don't take me out of context. Don't play that part of the tape. Let the rest of it play. I don't want that. I don't say that. And yet I know that God does bring it on at times or allows it. And it's for his glory. And I have to continually have the eternal perspective and not a temporal look. If my hope and if my joy is only in what is going on in my life right now, 
then I'm miserable. I like to ask the question, how are you doing? People say to me, good. I say, why? And they look at me like, huh? Oh, because I feel good. Really? So you're good just because you feel good. What if you had the flu today? I should go home and tell Ben. Ben's in, in, in the house, you know. He didn't have necessarily a good end of the night there, you know. And Hey, Ben, how you feel? You know, how you doing, Ben? You know, if you feel good only because you feel good, that's awful. The reality is there's going to be times in your life, as the older you get, right, guys? Some of you are older, you understand this, when your body doesn't feel good anymore. I think of Dr. Wacky. Dr. Wacky, who, who has t- tinnitus in his ears, so he continually hears a loud ringing in his ears all the time. I can't comprehend it. I don't want to have to comprehend it. Who's hurt his back over the years of being one who would work with his own hands. And so now he has um, a back that hurts like I can't imagine. Who still has a yearning desire to serve the Lord and to give God the glory and not whine about it. And if you ask him, things are still good. Not because of his current status. Because of his relationship with Jesus Christ. And one day, all these aches and pains, all this temporal ups and downs, conflicts and everything else, are going to go away. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we groan in this flesh, in this tent, we groan looking toward that. Are you looking toward it? Are you looking toward what God is going to do? Or is everything you got all soaked up in right now? If it is, you are very miserable. You are very miserable. So what about then the prophetic side of this passage? The side that we look at and we say this is probably the most incredible um, picture of God's love for us. What, what does this show about God and Christ and all these things? Well, first of all, you have to picture then Abraham being who? God. And Isaac is Jesus. And so what do we know about Jesus? Well, we know that he is the only son of God. We know that from John 3.16, very clearly, that um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I don't mean to, to, to downplay the rest of that. But God in this manner, that word so, is hutos means, in this manner. God in this manner. God demonstrated his love for us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated his love for us that he gave his only begotten son. He didn't hold anything back. Before the foundations of the world were laid, Christ died for us. Before he ever made man, before he ever made you, before you ever sinned, before ever you thought about sinning, God had already determined to to send his only son to die for you. His only begotten son. The one whom he loved. The one whom he shared glory with from eternity past. We know that from John 17, verse 3. 1 to 3. And so we're told in John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. That's really knowing it. When you know God and you know his love for you, you got it. That's what it's all about. He's the only son of God. The one he loves. 
Jesus said that if you love your mother or your father more than you love me, you don't love me at all. Secondly, what do we know about him? He's the only lamb of God. Abraham understood it. He said, my son, God himself will provide the lamb. And he did. That day when John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, was out baptizing at the Anon, and, um, at the Jordan near Anon, and his disciples were with him, Jesus came walking along. And he said to his disciples, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Now, I don't want to get into a hobby horse thing here, but just as an aside, it's for free. You take it and you leave it, okay? He didn't say, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the elect. The chosen, the remnant. He's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ came, not because he loved you because you're elect. I'll leave that go, okay? You know, you know I'm not saying anything beyond that. Jesus Christ came and died for you because you were made in his image and likeness. And he loves you. And so while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that whosoever will may come. God loves you. I don't know your, each of your hearts. You may profess Jesus Christ. You may profess Jesus Christ for 20 years. I can tell you I went to church for 23 years. 23 years and I didn't know him. I knew all about it. I could quote the books of the Bible to you. I remember it was 5th grade or 6th grade in Sunday school that we learned the books of the Bible. I could quote all those things to you. I helped my dad count the treasury work. I probably preached youth services. But I didn't know God. I didn't know Jesus. I knew all about him, but I didn't know him. I enjoyed the blessings without knowing the blesser. There's a vast difference between the two. Knowing all about him gets me into eternity in the wrong location. Knowing him gets me into eternity being in his presence. Don't deceive yourself. That's what James talks about in James chapter 1. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own self. You're not deceiving anybody else. It's just you. God's got you covered. He knows your heart. And if you're only playing a game, stop it. Stop playing the game. I, I beseech you, in the name of Christ, for eternity's sake, don't play the game. How many people die not expecting to have died that day? And everybody thinks, well, I can play the game until the what? The 11th hour. 11.59. I'll get saved. It happens. My grandma got saved two weeks before she died. I praise God for it. But it doesn't get, that didn't happen for everybody. I can tell you other people who died before they accepted Christ as their Savior. Jesus was the only Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Revelation chapter 5, let's turn there. In conclusion, It's always nice to, to end in the throne room of God. 
Revelation 5. I want to read verses 6 to 14. In fact, I'm going to start at verse 1. I love the Word of God. John says, I saw on the right hand of him who sat upon the throne a scroll that was written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or under the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to even look upon it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the angels said to me, Don't weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, not from the side of the throne, in the midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And then he came, and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat upon the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made us as kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the voice of creatures and the elders, and a number of them with ten thousand times ten thousands and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing, which is so exciting because if you go over to chapter 5, that is the same blessing that is offered to God himself. So that's the declaration that, that Jesus Christ the Lamb was God. In every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and they worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Seeing Jesus Christ as the only begotten Son of God, who is the only Lamb of God, ought to give you great impetus to worship Him. I mean, again, I've said this numerous times, but if, there, if there's nothing else that, that can cause you to worship Him, man, what He has done for you ought to be enough to make you fall on your face and to give Him the glory that He rightly deserves. What does He need to do? Using last week's analogy, how well does He need to serve your table? in order for you to recognize who he is. God's not your waiter. He's not there just to serve you. He owns you. You are his creation. And it is for you to worship him. Because of what he's done for you. I mean, it's not just like he hasn't done anything and he just wants you to, to bow down and worship me. He's done everything for you. He's not demanding it. It's expected. And it should be given. God's provided the lamb. Have you trusted the sacrifice that Christ has made on your behalf? Is there something that God has asked you to lay on the altar? And as I ended last week, I end with the same statement this week. Is your all on the altar? That he may alter all that you are. 
God can't work in you. He can't. He can force his way. He doesn't do that. Until you offer it as a living sacrifice to him. He wants you. You know, to the, the church of Ephesus, he said to them, I know your works. I know how you've tested those who said they're prophets and you found them to be not. You've done all these awesome things. But I have one thing against you. Just one thing. You've left your first love. You've left your first love. And if you don't repent, change the way you think, and return from whence you have fallen, I'm going to come and remove your candlestick. As we talked about in Sunday school, when the judgment of God comes, it will begin in the household of God. If he will judge the world for their rebellion to him. If a fool has said in his heart, there is no God, how much greater a fool is it who knows that there is one and acts like there isn't? God will judge his own. What are you withholding from him? We're getting ready to have communion. Participate in communion. Where we, we go to God and we say to God, you're it. We're in fellowship with you. We rejoice in what you've done for us. And we're in fellowship with one another. But it says as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that some have eaten and drinking the body and blood of Jesus unworthily. And for this cause, some are sick and some are even dying. That's a pretty powerful statement. I don't believe that this becomes the body and blood of Jesus, but I do believe in the importance of this time because Jesus said so through Paul. And I accept that to be true. So I challenge you that in this time, after we sing um, Behold the Lamb, we'll have a time for, for, um, for prayer, for personal prayer. I challenge you to take that time and ask the Lord to, to work in you. Before we sing, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love. I thank you for your word. It's quick, it's powerful, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. And God, I do pray that we would behold you, that we would glorify you, and we would behold your Lamb, Jesus the manifestation of God on earth, in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily. What a mind-boggling thing. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, that we would not hold anything back from you. But as Abraham believed that you were the true provider, you were Jehovah Jireh, that we would believe that in our own lives. God, help us to be living sacrifices for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.